A suspect is in custody in the second mass shooting in Serbia in two days. Eight people were killed yesterday following a school shooting Wednesday. It's Friday, May 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, what's next now that a jury convicted members of the right-wing extremist Proud Boys group of seditious conspiracy. Plus, a preview of the April jobs report that's coming out today, also this hour. It's always been a right of the public to have at least some basic access to the shoreline. How private property and local regulations make beach access in Massachusetts a lot more difficult than other states. And this hour with the coronation of King Charles III tomorrow, Tomorrow, a look back at a thousand years of coronation history in the UK. In sports, Red Sox win, cloudy with a few showers today in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. We'll find out this morning how the job market is holding up in the face of rising interest rates and stresses on the banking system. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Labor Department is set to report on job gains for the month of April. After a blockbuster month of job growth in January, hiring eased a bit in February and March. Most forecasters think today's report will show that slowdown continued into April, although it's hard to be certain given mixed economic signals. Rising interest rates are taking a toll on construction and manufacturing, and consumers have been more cautious with their spending in recent months. Some service-oriented businesses are still hiring, though, in response to continued demand for travel, entertainment, and dining out. While the unemployment rate's been hovering near a half-century low, there are signs of softening in the job market. Those include a drop in the number of job openings and a modest uptick in layoffs. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The former leader of the Proud Boys and three other members were convicted yesterday of seditious conspiracy for the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of 2021. A fifth member was acquitted but found guilty of other crimes concerning that day. A Minnesota man is facing federal hate crime and arson charges after authorities say he set fires inside two Minneapolis mosques last month. Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports. Federal prosecutors say that last week, 36-year-old Jackie Rom Little started a small fire in a mosque's bathroom the day before he was allegedly spotted entering another Islamic center just before a fire broke out inside. Minnesota U.S. Attorney Andy Luger says such crimes are a priority for the Justice Department. The freedom to worship is sacrosanct. We will respond to any attack on any house of worship with urgency and determination. Little's defense attorney says he may ask the court to address his client's mental competency. Public records show that Little has been in and out of jail, group homes, and hospitals amid a struggle with severe mental illness. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. An attorney for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas confirms that a Republican billionaire helped pay the private school tuition for a relative of Thomas, payments that were not disclosed, Republican Senator John Cornyn says he thinks Thomas is being targeted for criticism because he's a conservative black man. But he says the high court might consider possible changes in its ethics code. I think the best thing for the uh, Chief Justice Roberts and the judges to do is to take this experience and go back and and, uh, consider whether there are changes in their uh, code of ethics for the Supreme Court are appropriate. Democrat Dick Durbin, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says it's up to Chief Justice John Roberts to deal with growing concerns about the court's ethics. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local and federal officials are still working to figure out what caused an explosion that killed a worker at a pharmaceutical plant in Newburyport. Emergency crews recovered the body of the 62-year-old worker from the badly damaged Sequence PCI Synthesis Building yesterday evening. This is the third safety incident at the plant since 2020. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren, along with Congressman Seth Moulton, are calling on the company to explain what happened. A Walpole family wants answers after they say their nine-year-old special needs son was handcuffed by police officers in his third grade classroom. WBR's Allie Jarmanning reports that lawyers for the family allege the school ignored the boy's needs when he was in crisis and called in a school resource officer instead. Attorneys say the boy was restrained by his arms and legs. He was taken by ambulance to a nearby hospital, where he was kept for hours in an adult wing and separated from his mother. Erica Richmond, with Lawyers for Civil Rights, says the boy was treated more harshly than other children because he is black. We see white children being given the benefit of the doubt and treated like children, whereas this black child was treated like a criminal. Richmond says the family wants an apology and changes to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Walpole Police and the school department did not return messages seeking comment. A new study shows crime hasn't gone up in the area around the Encore Casino since it opened in Everett. Data from the Massachusetts Gaming Commission show that crime is at roughly the same level as it was before the casino opened in 2019. The report does show car-related crimes going up, but gaming officials say that's in line with national trends. A longtime journalist is combating escalating anti-Semitism with a concert honoring Jewish heritage and culture. It'll be held tomorrow afternoon at the Jewish Community Center of Greater Boston in Newton. WBUR's Christella Guerra attended a recent rehearsal. Linda Matchin organized the concert after noticing a shift while reporting. As incidents of hate rose... Some she interviewed didn't want her to reveal they were Jewish. She wanted to confront this with beauty, with music. I think it speaks right to your heart. I think music speaks to people in a way that is stronger than speech or language. And I think it opens you up. This concert celebrates Jewish composers, Felix Mendelssohn, Ernest Bloch, and George Gershwin. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. It's 7.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Porter Square Books. Stand-up comedian Stephen Wright, author of Herald, speaks at Porter Square Books Boston Edition this Sunday. Details and registration at portersquarebooks.com. The Red Sox beat the Toronto Blue Jays 11-5 last night at Fenway. The Sox will be in Philadelphia tonight to play the Phillies. The Celtics will also be in Philadelphia for Game 3 of their playoff series with the Sixers. That series is tied at one win each. A few showers this morning, otherwise mostly cloudy 
humidity today. It'll be in the mid-50s, partly cloudy overnight and in the 40s, sunny tomorrow and near 70. Sunny again on Sunday and also near 70. It should stay dry through next week. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 708. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The U.S. Treasury says it's using extraordinary measures to avoid defaulting on the country's debt. However, the Treasury Secretary says the federal government could run a cash by June 1st. If President Biden and Congress fail to come to terms over the debt ceiling, some state officials worry their budgets and their residents will feel the pain. Henry Beck is the state treasurer of Maine. There'd be less money in the bank for everybody. That would tighten credit and increase prices in an already very difficult environment. That could affect credit card rates, mortgages, auto loans. To hear about the effects on another state, we turn to the state treasurer of Nevada, Zach Conine. Treasurer, you just heard your main counterpart. How true does that ring for you in Nevada? Treasurer Beck has it absolutely right. Here in Nevada, we are so very concerned that if Congress doesn't get this right, uh, that the impacts are going to be felt in the state for a long time. We're just coming out of an incredibly difficult time for Nevada, uh, and we've had a great recovery, but this threatens to put it all at risk. And the threat of default, is that enough to change things? You know, we're already seeing it. A little bit of threat of default changes people's behavior. It changes just the the general concept that Nevadans and Americans have of their government, right? Full faith and credit should be a promise that we don't need to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about, but that's happening quite a bit out here. Now, economists say default could tip the U.S. into a full-blown recession. What happens uh, to a state like Nevada with a high unemployment rate? Well, what we always say is that when the rest of the country gets the sniffles, Nevada gets the flu, and that's absolutely going to be the case. You know, we still have an economy that is very, very dependent on travel and tourism. And so if we see protracted job losses, when we see major declines in the market, we see losses um, right here in Las Vegas. We see losses around the state. Uh, people just don't come as much. And that would be an absolutely insane thing uh, to have happen just so that we can play some political games. That could be just the ragweed in, Levi- in uh, Las Vegas uh, treasure you know, that happens once in a while. Um, will you cut <laughs> spending as a result of just this threat or if it happens? Well, at some point, if we start seeing decreases in revenue, we'll have to cut spending. But right now, uh, Nevada is dealing with a very, very good uh, economic situation coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we have record revenues. We have more money in the rainy day fund than we've ever had. We're, we're certainly ready uh, if we need to, to deal with a little bit of a downturn. Um, but I think it's important for us to focus on the cause here, right? And it's one thing to deal with a global pandemic and to make the hard decisions that Nevadans had to make during that. But to deal with a manufactured crisis uh, is frankly just a little disturbing to us. Well, I know, uh, Treasurer, you proposed a couple of bills uh, based on Nevada's current all-time best credit rating and that rainy day fund that you mentioned. One of them has to do with a, a trust fund for babies whose birth was covered by Medicaid. The other is a student loan repayment program that would include healthcare workers who work in underserved communities for at least five years. What happens to those bills if the federal government defaults? 
Well, we don't think that Nevadans should stop doing the work to protect and enhance opportunities for Nevadans, right? And so those bills are really important. We've got to solve our medical provider crisis here. We've got to make sure that we provide a path to get Nevadans out of generational poverty. We're going to keep doing that work. If there's a downturn in the future, we'll deal with it when it comes, but we're not going to stop fighting for Nevadans uh, just because of something happening across the country. But what, if anything, is the state preparing for just in case? I mean, is it even possible to prepare considering the uncertainty? It is. And we start thinking about things like having more cash in the bank um, when there has been uh, when there have been shutdowns in the federal government before. Sometimes the state has to lay out money uh, in order to make sure that we're ready to pay whatever those bills are that typically would be paid for by the federal government. Our concern this time is we just don't know that we can count on them uh, to pay their bills when they come due to the state. That's Nevada State Treasurer Zach Conine. Treasurer, thanks. Thank you. Outrage is growing over the death of a 30-year-old black man on a New York City subway train on Monday. The incident is proving to be a flashpoint in a larger conversation about race, homelessness, mental health, and public safety. There are reports that say Jordan Neely, who was homeless at the time, was yelling on Manhattan's F train. A white man who has not been identified by police then put him in a chokehold. Two other passengers restrained him. The city's medical examiner ruled the death a homicide, but no one has been charged with a crime. To talk about this, we have NPR's Brian Mann. Good morning. Hi, Layla. So, Brian, can we expect police to make an arrest in this case? That's not certain at this time. The man who choked Neely to death was questioned by police and then released. So far, he's still free. No charges filed. Uh, There are two investigations underway, one by the NYPD, another by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, but we just don't know yet how long that's going to take. Before we go any further, I want to know more about Jordan Neely, the man that was killed. What do we know about the life he lived, who he was? Yeah, it's a, it's a really sad story. He was a street performer. He dressed like Michael Jackson, you know, moonwalking and dancing in exchange mm-hmm. for tips. Friends, though, also describe him to our member station, WNYC, as deeply troubled. His mother was murdered by a boyfriend when Jordan Neely was just 14. He then spent time in foster care and as an adult was not able to find stable housing. One witness to Monday's violence on this subway car told media outlets that Neely was shouting about needing food and being willing to die. Now, different politicians are reacting and framing Jordan Neely's death very differently. Let's start with Mayor Eric Adams. What's he saying about this? Yeah, Mayor Adams, who's black, is really the one top Democrat in in this democratically controlled city who who hasn't condemned the violence. You know, what was captured on the video here is this white man put Jordan Neely in a chokehold. The medical examiner says compression of the neck is what killed Neely. What we don't know yet is what led up to that confrontation. That's not on the videotape we've seen. Mayor Adams, who's a former police officer, says the public should wait for investigations to be finished. And Layla, he's also cited this incident as justification for his controversial effort to move mentally ill people off the streets and out of train stations. He's proposed using involuntary hospitalization in some cases to do that. Uh, In a statement, Adams said, we know there were serious mental health issues in play here. Now, other elected officials are condemning police for not arresting the white man who choked Neely, who was black, to death. What are they saying? Now, New York City Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also a Democrat, took a shot directly at the mayor about this. She called this incident a murder, and she wrote, I have yet to hear a real explanation from any official hesitating to condemn the killing of Jordan Neely 
about what makes condemning this violence so complicated. Those are her words. Uh, New York City Council President Adrian Adams also issued a statement saying uh, Neely's killing and the law enforcement response reflect, quote, racism that continues to permeate through our society. Hmm. And how does Jordan Neely's killing fit into the wider conversation about uh, people who are unhoused, public safety? Yeah, this really is the major political issue in New York City right now. Republicans, you'll remember, did really well in the midterms last year campaigning on public safety and crime. Mayor Adams has made this a major issue for his administration. And a lot of New Yorkers clearly are worried about people on the streets and on subway trains who are experiencing homelessness or mental illness or addiction despite the fact statistically that New York City is very safe. So, you know, the questions in this case will be whether Neely did anything threatening that might justify this use of force by the other commuter. But the wider question here is how does this city help people who are struggling with mental illness and homelessness before incidents like this occur? NPR's Brian Mann. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Sequels might be box office gold, but what about in presidential elections? Well, we might find out if 2024 winds up being a Trump-Biden rematch. NPR's Jimena Bustillo is in Arizona, where she's been asking Democrats how they feel about a 2020 do-over. There are just a few more finals standing between students at Arizona State University and their summer break. But what's even less exciting than finals? The thought of a Biden-Trump rematch. I hate that. <laughs> I don't think we need to be doing this again. That's Jada Hagen, a graduating senior at Arizona State's nursing program. After watching Biden the last few years, she feels lied to about certain issues she feels strongly about, like environmental protections. I just feel like there's a lot of talk and not a lot of follow through with what he's saying. Ricardo Cerna with the Maricopa Young Democrats says that young voters are going to hold Biden's feet to the fire on promises related to climate, abortion, and labor. We are all about like receipts, right? And having like proof of where you stood on these issues. A recent NPR poll shows both Democrats and Republicans are not excited about their current frontrunners. I don't blame them. I would blame more the parties for not having candidates that excite people. But while the students are not quite ready to think about 2024, older Democrats in Maricopa County are already in campaign mode. How many of you are so proud to be a Democrat? At a Maricopa Democrats meeting just outside Phoenix, State Representative Jennifer Pollack had a big announcement. After much deliberation with my family and close friends, I have decided not to seek another term as your legislator. The local leader has held her swing district since 2018, and she wants to give the next Democrat the best chance to win. I thought it was important to step back so that other candidates can get in the race and have the time to make connections with the voters so that they can win in the fall of next year. Brandy Reese attended that Maricopa Dems meeting too. She understands that younger voters are disillusioned about a Biden-Trump rematch, but she feels differently. I am excited about that matchup actually because I think that we will see the exact same result. And her message to young Arizonans, if you don't like the choices, get involved. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Welcome to Friday. Thanks for being with WBUR. Coming up in about four minutes on Morning Edition, ahead of the crowning of Britain's King Charles tomorrow, we look back on a thousand years of coronation history. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum, with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. And Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX, an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, country star Brad Paisley talked about playing his songs for his teenage kids. So we listened to it in the kitchen, and, and in Huck, my oldest said, well, they can't all be gems. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for this week's Wait, Wait, when we ask Ray Romano what his kids think of his work. That's the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A slight chance of showers this morning, then mostly cloudy with a high near 54. Tonight, partly cloudy and temperatures fall to a low around 46. It's looking like a great weekend. Saturday will be sunny with a high near 70. Sunday, mostly sunny and near 70 again. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. The last and only time a coronation in Britain was televised was 70 years ago. Queen Elizabeth II appeared in black and white for anyone lucky enough to have a TV. Tomorrow, her son will be crowned King Charles III. To find out about coronation traditions, we called up George Grass of King's College London. For what's called the British Coronations Project, he and his colleague David Crankshaw studied almost 10 centuries of coronation history. We're often asked, why is this ceremony still of value to this day? And I pick out the coronation oath, and one of those promises is for their leader, the king or queen, to uphold law with justice and mercy. And this stands out to me because we have rulers um, throughout the world willing to break the rule of law. We have a war in Ukraine on European soil. So for our head of state in the UK to still swear to uphold something so significant and for a thousand years of history, I think is still to me the most moving element. You know, I've also heard it said several times in the past week that this is a religious ceremony, not just a state event. So in this case, no separation of church and state when it comes to the coronation. That's correct. We have uh, still a state church in the UK. This is really brought out with elements both of the oath and of anointing. 
uh, particularly the anointing that, that appear almost like a second baptism or a consecration of a priest. Mm -hmm. That said, King Charles III has made a very real effort to adapt the, the service for the times to reflect the, the arguably more secular age in which we live and the fact that there are many of his subjects of different faiths, um, not least those leaders of, of different parts of the UK, from the Prime Minister to the First Minister of Scotland. The Prime Minister being Hindu, the First Minister of Scotland being Muslim. Exactly. Is the anointing of Charles with holy oil, will that be televised? So this will not be televised. Um, at least we don't think it will. They've, they've developed a, a canopy uh, that will sort of, or curtain that will be held around the monarch during this. So it's going to follow the 1953 tradition and this sort of idea that you should not let in daylight upon the magic. So this is the magic, the Holy of Holies. At the same time, we have a completely new anointing oil. It has come from Jerusalem. It's a sort of oh. classic British invention of tradition, sounding traditional Jerusalem, but it's not. So that's entirely new. Um, that reflects the um, the way the monarch, King Charles III, is wanting to draw attention to other faiths. So I know I've asked you to examine the last thousand years. So now let's talk about the last 70 years. What does the attendance for this coronation say about what's changed over 70 years? lots of the key elements of the service remain the same. And we try and use the analogy of a marriage. So at accession, um, when the king dies or queen dies and the new monarch becomes king or queen, we would see that as the engagement um, to the state. And the coronation is the marriage to the state. So there are key things like any marriage in any, in any tradition that, that are pretty much have remained quite similar throughout history. The main central points like anointing, crowning, the oath, they will remain the same. But the, the personnel will look different. And the ceremony is supposed to be much shorter? We've heard that the homage, which originates in medieval or knightly um, sort of knights in shining armor, a world where the, the monarch was the chief knight and likely to lead, lead the army into battle, um, that was the world of the, the homage. That, that's going to be massively reduced, almost certainly only done by the Prince of Wales um, or a much smaller body. And then there's been a recent call to to sort of make the homage a public, almost iPhone um, event in which people around the country join in in paying allegiance uh, to, to the king um, on, on their phones or on the internet in some way. So 1953, there was something special about the fact that many people bought a television for the first time. Um, so you could, have, you could have shown it for any number of hours. Here it has to adapt to, to 21st century priorities. Especially if people were watching one-minute clips on TikTok. It, it's, got, it's got to be digestible um, in, in that fashion, but it's still going to be long. Uh, the order service yeah. is long, and there is a lot of wonderful new commission music, so lots of those elements. And what about the physical trappings, jewels, crowns, thrones? What should we expect to see? If they hear reference to the anointing spoon, it's the oldest part of the regalia that will feature at the coronation. Um, it survived the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell's melting down of um, all of the regalia, um, to sort of 13th century origin, incredibly old. So that's used during the anointing service. Some of these crown jewels, like St. Edward's crown, um, remade in 1661 for Charles II's coronation. So almost all the regalia that will be seen were, was, was principally remade in 1661. And this sort of invention of tradition, 
St. Edward's chair that has the Stone of Destiny or Stone of Schoon placed within it, uh, very significant for people in Scotland, um, said to have biblical origins as the um, Jacob's pillow. Um, but th that's, that's, a, that's a, another special moment that will be on display. Um, I think for some people, they'll listen to this and think, oh, well, it's from medieval times. It shouldn't exist anymore. What do you say? I mean, I know that as a historian, I hope that doesn't come off offensive. No, not at all. This is such a long-running tradition. Should it still exist today? And, and what does it mean for the UK that it does? Yeah, no, no, not at all. It's a very good question. And you can say the same of almost any tradition. Should there still be inaugurations of US presidents? I mean, sticking something on somebody's head to make them seem important or significant is, you know, Egyptian origin, Tutankhamun had a crown. It's, it's not particular to the UK, but why do we still have it? Well, tradition takes a long time to make, and that tradition adds value to the symbolism of some of the things that are said. So I think it adds value to that oath, um, and particularly that central tenant of upholding law with justice and mercy. So I think that still has relevance in the 21st century. George Gross is a visiting research fellow at King's College London. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. You're starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, new employment numbers out from the Labor Department later today are expected to reveal the extent to which the jobs market has slowed. We look at what that might mean for inflation. It's 729. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, host of WBUR's news and culture podcast, The Common. My mom is the anchor of the family, and without her love and support, I don't know if I'd be the person I am today. I am forever grateful. This Mother's Day, show some gratitude to your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll support local journalism that strengthens our community. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. There are growing calls for an arrest in the death of a homeless man on a New York subway. Witnesses say 30-year-old Jordan Neely was threatening others when a former Marine put him in a chokehold for 15 minutes. Neely later died at a hospital, and his death was ruled as a homicide. Attorney Lennon Edwards is representing the Neely family. The situation that was presented was not one where he was in, in, inflicting physical harm on anyone. To the contrary, he had physical harm inflicted on him. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has said he will let the district attorney's investigation play out. Preparations are underway across the United Kingdom a day before the coronation of King Charles III. NPR's Lauren Frere is outside of Buckingham Palace where people have been gathering all week. Some have camped out for days. The family next to me has two little boys wearing plastic golden crowns. Um, lots of police here, too. World leaders are also arriving. Jill Biden will be attending, but not her husband. Another famous American, Meghan Duchess of Sussex, will not be here. Her husband, Prince Harry, will. That's NPR's Lauren Frere reporting from London. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy.
As we wait for the national jobs report to come out this morning, the latest data from Massachusetts show jobless claims ticking up. 28,000 people in the state applied for first-time unemployment benefits last week. That's up 10 percent from the week before. Mark Melnick with the UMass Donahue Institute believes the job market here is cooling. My concern for anyone right now who may be losing uh, jobs or people who are just on the sidelines right now is how well do their uh, their skills and uh, education level align with the segments of the economy that are growing the most right now. Nationwide jobless claims have remained flat over the last month. A new partnership between some Massachusetts school districts and a local health startup is reducing wait times for kids to receive mental health treatment. As WBUR's Suvan Lee reports, the model is built around short-term care delivered in a virtual setting. Fifteen school districts are working with a new telehealth service called Cartwheel Care. The company works with school counselors to receive referrals and to come up with a therapy plan for students. Salem Public Schools Superintendent Stephen Zreich said the district's investment in the partnership flows directly from forums where parents urged more attention and funding on kids' well-being. I'd heard repeatedly from families that one of the things that they were most frustrated by was the long lines and the, the waiting list to get mental health services for their child. Cartwheel handles all billing and insurance needs and costs are fully covered for students on mass health. For 98.9 WBUR, I'm Suvon Lee. Part of the seawall in Swampscott needs to be repaired after it collapsed yesterday. The collapse forced the evacuation of a restaurant that sits on the seawall. Town officials say they're working with the owner on repairs. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Tonight is Game 3 in the playoff series between the Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers. The series is tied at one game apiece. The Red Sox will also be in Philadelphia tonight. They're beginning a weekend series with the Phillies. The Sox beat the Toronto Blue Jays last night 11-5 at Fenway. There's a chance of patchy drizzle through about mid-morning. Then it'll be overcast today with a high in the mid-50s. Tonight, some clouds clear away and it'll be in the mid-40s. Then the weather finally improves for the weekend. It'll be sunny and near 70 both days. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston at 734. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. There are a few speed bumps in the path of the U.S. economy right now. Inflation's one, rising interest rates are another. Add to that the recent turmoil in the banking system. So what does this all mean then for the job market? Well, we're going to get some clues this morning when the Labor Department reports on April's job gains. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with a preview. Scott, is the job market slowing down? 
A, it looks like it. Uh, keep in mind, we've added a huge number of jobs over the last three years. Uh, and after a blockbuster month in January, hiring did slow down a bit in February and March. We'll find out this morning if that trend continued into April. Most forecasters think it did. Uh, we are getting some mixed signals, though. In certain industries, like construction and manufacturing, are definitely feeling the pinch of those rising interest rates you mentioned. Of course, the Fed raised rates again this week. But other sectors are still humming. Uh, Julia Pollack, who's chief economist at the job search website ZipRecruiter, says that's especially true in some service businesses that cater to people's demand for travel and dining out. Strong hiring for airlines and hotels and restaurants is largely offsetting the weakness elsewhere. Unemployment remains very low, just 3.5% in March. But there are definitely signs of cooling in the job market. Job openings have been coming down and layoffs have been inching up. And are employers still seeing a lot of turnover? Some, but not as much as they had been. Uh, the number of people quitting jobs voluntarily has come down a bit, uh, which could be a sign that workers are less confident that they'll find another job if they quit. Or maybe they just don't want to be the newest hire at a company if they think there might be layoffs on the horizon. Uh, there are still more job vacancies than there are uh, workers to fill those jobs. But one encouraging sign we've seen in recent months is a big surge of people joining or rejoining the workforce. Neela Richardson, who's chief economist at the payroll processing company ADP, says almost 900,000 people started looking for work in February and March. We'll see if that trend continued into April. People are coming off the sidelines and back into the labor market. That's good for the economy. It's also good for the inflation environment. The Federal Reserve uh, has been worried for some time that the job market was out of balance uh, with more demand than supply. But all these new workers are helping to correct, correct that. Uh, the influx of new workers could be a response to the higher wages and better working conditions that employers are offering these days. It could also be a sign that more people feel the need to make some money to keep pace with rising prices. And the recent fallout in the banking system, Scott, how does that affect the jobs picture? It's definitely something to keep an eye on. We've now had three big banks fail in just the last two months. Uh, that's making other lenders nervous. Uh, and as a result, they're expected to be more cautious about making loans. Uh, credit conditions were tightening even before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in March, and that's definitely accelerated now. Uh, Pollock says it could take a few months, but that cutback in credit is likely to have ripple effects in the job market. If small businesses can't borrow, they won't be able to open new locations, to add new equipment. So we could see a pullback in small business hiring. The credit crunch acts a little bit like the Federal Reserve's higher interest rates. It, it slows the economy down. But while the Fed's move is calibrated and deliberate, the credit crunch is unplanned and unpredictable. So whether the effect is a smooth, gradual slowdown in hiring or something more abrupt and jarring is something we'll be watching for both today and in the months to come. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thanks. You're welcome. Nearly a million Floridians who've done their time for a felony are still not able to vote. That's despite a 20 to 18 ballot measure that promised to restore voting rights. NPR's Ashley Lopez explains why that is and why the issue won't likely be resolved anytime soon. The reason a lot of these folks don't have their voting rights back stems from rules Republicans added after that 2018 ballot measure passed. They required that returning citizens pay all the fees and fines associated with their sentence before they can vote again. But Fentress Driscoll, the Democratic leader of the Florida House, says these lawmakers never created a system to find out who owes what. 
We've been asking for a database. Just let people know whether or not they have fines and fees. Let them know how to pay for them. Let them know whether or not they are eligible to register to vote. It's been years and the state doesn't have that database. And lately, some people have been paying a high price for that. Driscoll says things came to a head last year. We all watched in horror as Governor DeSantis had 20 people or so arrested. He had returning citizens who believed that they had registered to vote in a valid way. He had them arrested. These 20 individuals weren't eligible because they had been convicted of murder or sexual assault, which exempted them from getting their rights back even if they paid their fines. But despite that, most of them were given voter registration cards. Local election officials said they were relying on the state to make sure voters were eligible. Abdila Skier with the ACLU of Florida says those arrests have since had a chilling effect on anyone with a past conviction. People who may have questions around their eligibility don't want to take that risk. They do the mental calculus and they figure I can either vote and risk getting arrested or I can just not vote. Skier says it is the state's responsibility to determine who can vote and who cannot. But Florida lawmakers have decided that it's up to voters. Lawmakers last week passed Senate Bill 7050 that adds this language to voter registration cards. Quote, this card is proof of registration, but is not legal verification of eligibility to vote. It's almost like going into the DMV and getting a driver's license and then being told you can't drive. That's Neil Voles with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. His group has been pushing the state to create a database. So this bill symbolizes an abandonment of responsibility by the state to do its job and actually fix our broken system. Voles says lawmakers simply haven't made this issue a priority, even though Republicans and Democrats agree the murkiness around who can vote is a problem. Florida Secretary of State Cord Byrd, who was appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis, urged returning citizens to contact his office to determine their eligibility. But advocates say that process often takes months. Byrd also told lawmakers last month that he thinks a database is a good idea. In my almost one year as as secretary, I I would love to see a statewide database. It is beyond my technical ability to explain how that works because you have many different entities, including uh, the Department of Corrections, FDLE. He says that also includes courts in Florida and county election offices. And Byrd says all this data would need to be housed and transferred, which is more complicated than it sounds because all these agencies store and code their data differently. So I can envision a day that uh, the state of Florida takes the lead and has a one centralized way that we can do this. But until that day comes, we have to continue to do it the way we're doing it. And that means the responsibility will stay with voters. Lawmakers also recently gave more legal authority to a state prosecutor focused on charging people who vote illegally. So if voters are unsure whether they can vote, the stakes for getting it wrong are about to get higher. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. This is NPR News. We made it to Friday. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. In just a few minutes at 745, as the weather warms up and you start thinking about heading to the beach, we have what you need to know about barriers to enjoying the shoreline in Massachusetts. Mostly cloudy in mid-50s today, partly cloudy in mid-40s tonight, then sunny and near 70 both days this weekend. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. 
announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Writers Guild strike in Hollywood is likely to have an impact on the Massachusetts film industry. The labor dispute is centered on how streaming services affect writers' pay. W.B. Warzeninger and Wemeka reports on the ripple effects that will be felt here. Massachusetts has been the site of some major Hollywood productions over the years. But with the writers' strike, things may be a little quieter. Some local studios say... They just have to wait this out. Gary Crossan is the general manager of New England Studios in Devon. This is actually a little reminiscent of the nine-month break we took in 2020 because of COVID. And then we were back up and operational, and the industry really hadn't, hadn't skipped a beat. Crossan says he put discussions with two major productions on hold due to the strike. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scriptsnews.com forward slash TV. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The weather's getting warmer, which means many of us are thinking about hitting the beach. But if you don't live on the coast, securing a spot at one of the region's beaches can be tough and expensive. There are efforts to change that, and John Duff has been studying the issue. He's a professor of environmental law and policy at UMass Boston and joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Why do you feel like we should expect everyone to have access to beaches in Massachusetts? Why is that important? It's always been a right of the public to have at least some basic access to the shoreline. And historically, it's been for subsistence or navigation purposes. In the 20th and 21st century, more people were going to the coastline uh, for recreation. So there's a long history of public access. It's just the type of public access and the reason that people want to go to the coast that has changed over time. Can you remind us what the barriers have been to visiting beaches and how Massachusetts differs from other parts of the country when it comes to beaches being public or private? In most states, if you live along the coastline, the property line ends at the high watermark. Massachusetts' original English charters and grants allowed people to actually own the intertidal zone, that is the the land area between the high watermark and the low watermark. New Hampshire, private property owners can own to the high tide line, and Rhode Island, they can own to the high tide line. Massachusetts and Maine are exceptions to the rule. I've also noticed, you know, going to beaches myself, that parking costs have gone up and there seem to be more restrictions on non-residents. How long have there been access issues like those and are they increasing? How are they changing? 
they are increasing. There are more people these days than, than there were in the past. The Massachusetts population has doubled or tripled in, in the last 50 or 60 years. In some places, there is a parking permit that you can purchase to go to, say, a town beach. In most of those places, a non-resident could buy either a day pass or an annual pass, but they're going to be paying more than the residents of the town are. And in one recent case, uh, the town of Brewster actually purchased a piece of property. They restricted parking to the town residents. And they made an exception for members of the Wampanoag tribe. Hmm. Um, so the town of Brewster wanted to recognize the existence and the history of the Wampanoags in the area. Increasing beach access requires funding. Do you have any ideas about where that funding could come from? To enhance access, the state legislature passed something called the Community Preservation Act, which allows towns, if they choose, to raise funds through a surcharge on property taxes. And those surcharges can be used for acquiring or enhancing open space, and that includes beach space. And a lot of those efforts have been designed to allow more folks of different abilities to actually reach the beach. A lot of places are using money to put uh, things called mobility mats. Some towns have acquired beach wheelchairs. Some places have restored or built restrooms because with more and more people going to the beach, you certainly need more restroom facilities there. And water quality is like a major issue here. Does that issue intersect with the issue of access at all? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, people want to go to the beach, but they want to go to a clean, healthy, safe beach. So I grew up in the Boston area. The water in Boston Harbor was pretty bad. For that reason, if people wanted to go to a clean, safe beach, they actually had to leave the Boston area. Uh, some of the best beaches in Boston Harbor are the ones on the Boston Harbor Islands. And, you know, they're right offshore, but you've got to take a ferry over there. And those ferries can be costly. A family of four might be looking at close to 100 bucks to get out there. And that's that's pretty pricey. For people thinking about this issue, is there anything they can do in order to increase access to our state's beaches? There are a lot of beaches that are public and relatively close by. There are some state-run beaches in and around the Boston area. There are some town beaches uh, up and down the coast. So just knowing where they are is quite helpful. John Duff is a professor of environmental law and policy at UMass Boston. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Coming up in just a couple minutes on WBUR, we hear from acclaimed heavy metal drummer Dave Lombardo as he debuts his first solo album. And at 810, California is bracing for the state's historic snowpack to melt. Officials are draining reservoirs to prepare for flooding. It's 7.50. I'm Vipa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR, and you'll support the station that has your back. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. In Serbia, a suspect accused of killing eight people in the country's second mass shooting this week is in custody. A jury convicted four members of the far-right Proud Boys group. 
for their role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. In Newburyport, local and federal authorities are investigating the cause of a deadly explosion at a pharmaceutical plant. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And Russell's Garden Center, a shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A spring tradition for 146 years. Route 20 Wayland. Mostly cloudy in mid-50s today with a slight chance of showers. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 752. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. You're listening to a legendary drummer's debut solo album. This track is him getting back to his Cuban roots. He's banging on a bata there. But throughout the record, he explores percussion from around the world. Cool story, right? I mean, yeah, of course it is. Now wait till you find out who he is. Dave Lombardo is a founding member of Slayer, one of the fastest, most punishing metal bands of all time. Pure screaming chaos. But let's take away the amplifiers for just a second so you can focus on a musician with serious chops. Dave Lombardo's new album is titled Rites of Percussion, and he calls it a journey through his rhythmic mind. It's something I've always wanted to do because I've been influenced by so many other drummers and percussionists that weren't metal or thrash, you know, the great Tito Puente, Latin jazz percussionist. He was like, he was awesome. I wanted this album to be in a different mood than anything I've done. It's not about aggression or playing fast or playing hard. It's about setting up a a feeling or a groove. So speaking of tone and mood, I wanted to play uh, one of the songs that uh, stood out to me in uh, Rites of Percussion. That's Warpath. Let's hear a little of Warpath. So Dave, take us through what's happening in Warpath, because when I saw the name of the song, I was expecting, you know, when the when the warriors go to war in the movie, I was kind of expecting that kind of aggressive thing. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was like the warriors have a little flair and style to them. <laughs> um, yeah, with Warpath, it harnessed the excitement or the adrenaline of, let's say, you know, warriors or, or soldiers fighting with, with someone. And what were you using in Warpath? What kind of things were, are we hearing? In Warpath, you're hearing djembe, a uh, layer upon layer of djembes. Oh, the uh, bottle. Drum set. Shakers. What about right there? What's going on right right there? It's like a sampled drone that I, I found. Mm-hmm. 
There was a lot of moments that I felt I needed to bring in at least some kind of ambient or mm. drone sound, you know, because I felt that it just, it was a little naked. You were born in Cuba. You left when you were pretty young. Yes. Um, where do we hear Cuba on this album? Because you you really had tried to reconnect with Cuba recently. It's, it's all over the place. This album is inspired by my roots. And I didn't know how inspired I was until uh, probably 85 or 86 when I was recording Slayer's Angel of Death. And the double bass kept going and I hit my tom-toms. You know, in a way, like Tito Puente would hit his timbales. <laughs> you know, Tito Puente has a song called Ran Can Can. You know, so it's dun, 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 dun. I did that unknowingly. Dude, that musical moment was in your DNA then. It was, it, it exactly. was you were born with that. I know, I know. That's what later I realized. Yeah. And when I went to Cuba in 2018 and started playing congas, uh, the other metal musicians that we were performing that night with, he, they looked at me. It's like, it's in your blood, man. Yeah. You could tell it's in your blood from what I was exposed to. When I was a kid, my mom and dad used to go to these, uh, in America, to these Cuban clubs. And they would have a family that would cook dinner. They would have matinees for kids. And then at nighttime, there would be a, a Cuban dance band come in for the parents and so I, we were there practically all day, and I would always sit and watch the drummers. They're just sweating and people dancing and enjoying themselves, and the horn section comes in, and just the power. It, it was phenomenal. I'll never forget those days. In, in 2018, when you did visit, though, did you get to jam with people there? I, mean, I didn't. You didn't? Oh, wow. No, I didn't. I paid a visit with my wife and my mom. I took her, and I'm very happy that I was able to take her back. Her, her memory, I mean, she was probably 85 at the time, was so on point. She said, go down this street. We were able to go to the house I was born in. There's a photograph I have of her pregnant with me. And so when we walked up, I said, ma'am, excuse me, we're just going to take a picture right here, if you don't mind. And the lady inside the house comes out and says, China, my mom's nickname in oh, Cuba wow. and in the States was China. And so she said, China. And my mom was shocked. I knew, she said, I knew you'd come back someday. So she had us come in. We had some, some coffee. It's fascinating. Yeah. It was a great experience. Wow. I'm glad I gave my mom that gift uh, before she passed. What does this music, what you're putting out now with rights of percussion, what does it say about the type of musician you are today? I like for it to say that I'm open-minded. I haven't painted myself in a corner. It's challenging. You have to challenge the listener. If it rattles their innards, if they're like, oh, dear, why would he do that? You know? <laughs> we all need our innards rattled. I mean, it's a good diuretic. We all need that. <laughs> and, you know, if it does that, I think, uh, you know, you've done something. 
That is drummer Dave Lombardo. His first solo album is called Rights of Percussion. Uh, Dave, congratulations on the first solo album, and thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and it's an honor to be on NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Authorities in Serbia have arrested a suspect in the fatal shooting of eight people and wounding of 14 others. It's the second mass shooting there this week. It's Friday, May 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, four members of the far-right Proud Boys have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy for their role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Today's verdict makes clear that the Justice Department will do everything in its power to defend the American people and American democracy. Also, the UK crowns a new king tomorrow. We look at how the royals are trying to balance pomp and pageantry with tradition and reality. And this hour, the partnership between Massachusetts school districts and a vocal startup to help provide mental health care for students. It was just incredible how quickly they were able to accept her, get care for her for what she needed. Red Sox win, cloudy in mid-50s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Police in Serbia have arrested a suspect in a series of shootings that killed eight people and wounded at least 14. It was the nation's second mass shooting in two days. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. In a statement, police said the man was arrested near the central Serbian town of Kragujevac, about 60 miles south of the capital, Belgrade. The gunman fired an automatic weapon from a moving vehicle in three villages and was arrested after an all-night search by hundreds of police. The shooting came a day after a 13-year-old boy killed nine people at a Belgrade school on Wednesday. Serbia's interior minister called this week's second shooting a terrorist act. And it came as a nation was coming to terms with its worst mass shooting in a decade. Students, many wearing black and carrying flowers, filled streets around Belgrade as they paid homage to their murdered peers. The same day, Serbian authorities called to boost gun control throughout the country. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. A judge says the former leader of the Proud Boys and four other members of the extremist group may be sentenced this summer. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports on fallout from the seditious conspiracy case. Judge Timothy Kelly is asking prosecutors and defense lawyers to plan for extensive sentencing hearings this summer. A federal jury in Washington, D.C. convicted Enrique Tario, Joe Biggs, Ethan Nordine, and Zach Reel of seditious conspiracy stemming from the Capitol riot. Another defendant, Dominic Pizzola, was acquitted of sedition but faces punishment on robbery, conspiracy, and obstruction charges. The verdicts mark a significant victory for the justice. Justice Department, which has now secured more than 600 convictions tied to the siege on the U.S. Capitol. Attorney General Merrick Garland says that work continues. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Police have made an arrest in a series of stabbings that killed two people and terrorized the University of California Davis for days. A 21-year-old man, a former student there, is believed responsible. 
Davis Police Chief Darren Pytel says the suspect was arrested after police received tips from the community. It's pretty remarkable. Fifteen people took a description that we had put out, and actually all of you in the media had helped us put out, and they saw a person who matched the description, and they called. And that led directly to the arrest in this case. Police did not disclose any motive for the stabbings. The Labor Department is scheduled to release its monthly job report within the hour. Many analysts expect that job growth continued to slow in April as rising interest rates affected employment in construction and manufacturing. Also in recent months, consumers have been more cautious in spending. The jobless rate has stayed near a half-century low. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The city of Newburyport will shut down the pharmaceutical plant at the center of a deadly explosion. That closure will help investigators figure out what happened yesterday. One worker inside the sequence PCI synthesis building died. Acting Fire Chief Stephen Bradbury says damage to the building made it dangerous for crews to get to the man's body. A lot of debris and concerns about stuff falling down and other hazards uh, that we had to be aware of. So extremely difficult, very tedious work, uh, you know, move forward a little bit at a time, right, because we don't want to put any of our people in any danger. This is the third safety incident at the plant since 2020. Senator Ed Markey is among the local lawmakers demanding an explanation from PCI Synthesis. He accuses the company of having a, quote, flagrant disregard for worker safety. Massachusetts hospitals will no longer require that all patients, visitors, and employees wear face masks. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCleskey reports that the move follows a shift in state and federal policies toward COVID. Beginning next Friday, masks will become optional for most people visiting and working in hospitals. But anyone can still choose to wear a mask. Katie Murphy is president of the Massachusetts Nurses Association and works in an ICU. She says she's keeping her mask on. COVID is still out there. I certainly want to protect myself my family, my community, and my patients. Some public health advocates argue the end of universal masking will be harmful to patients, especially those who are immunocompromised. Hospital leaders say they'll continue to track COVID and revise mask policies in the future, if needed. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCleskey. Massachusetts is making improvements in its effort to remove lead from school drinking water. A new report from the environmental advocacy group U.S. Perg shows the state got a C-. That's better than the D it received in 2019. Analysts say the state's ranking improved because of money spent on lead filters and a voluntary testing program. Every spring at the Arnold Arboretum, there's a burst of pink, red, and yellow pine cones on the trees. This year, one young spruce is putting on an extra special show. WBUR's Barbara Moran explains. Everyone's seen a pine cone, right? Well, they start out as inch-long, brightly colored buds. Usually, this species of tree has some pink male cones and some red females. But this year... Most of the buds on the tree are both, half pink and half red. I've seen these cones on this tree before, but I've never noticed such a large proportion of them. 
Arnold Arboretum director William Friedman says, nobody sure how or why a tree buds this way, but people want to see it. When I went over to the tree the other day, there were eight people gathered around the tree. The tree is near the Walter Street Gate and should be budding for a few more days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an evening with Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli, live at TD Garden on December 6th. Tickets available now at Ticketmaster.com. The Red Sox have now won six straight. They beat the Toronto Blue Jays 11-5 last night at Fenway. The Sox head to Philadelphia tonight to play the Phillies. Just a few blocks away from that game will be Game 3 between the Celtics and the Sixers. Their playoff series is tied up at one game each. In your forecast, a few showers this morning. Otherwise, mostly cloudy today. It'll be in the mid-50s. Partly cloudy overnight and in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow. Tomorrow and near 70, sunny again on Sunday and also near 70. It should stay dry through next week. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 808. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and three other members of the far-right extremist group could face decades in prison. They've been found guilty of seditious conspiracy and other crimes for plotting to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, part of an effort to keep Donald Trump in power after he lost the 2020 presidential election. So what impact, if any, will these convictions have on homegrown far-right extremism. We turn now to Cynthia Miller-Idris. She runs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program. So what impact has this trial had on the Proud Boys? It really hasn't had uh, as much of an impact as you'd like to think. I mean, mm. they have continued, to, they've really evolved. Their, uh, their members are you know, all across the country and they're just now moving into other types of protests. So they've been protesting at children's reading, you know, drag uh, reading and, and libraries and protesting anti-racist education and just kind of opportunistically jumping on other types of, um, of protests that are happening across the country. And when you say protesting, often this can be violent. Exactly. It's either violent or it carries the whiff of violence. And that's Mm -hmm. part of the impact they've had is they have helped to normalize the idea of political violence. And we're seeing support for political violence, of course, um, rise in the mainstream as well. So given what you've just described, these convictions, will they act as a warning, as a deterrent, not just for the Proud Boys, but other violent extremists, white nationalists, so-called patriotic militias across this country? I think it's important to acknowledge that it's a good thing we got those convictions. It's a good day for democracy to see that um, happen, to have this really strong signal about these things being illegal and that there are consequences to it. But the vast majority of violence, including virtually every terrorist uh, attack in the last 25 years coming from the far right, um, has not been from anyone affiliated with a group. So most of what we see in the violent uh, actions are individuals who are radicalized online into toxic 
cultures. And this doesn't really affect that at all. And so I think we should be glad that we got the convictions, but we also shouldn't put too much hope in it. The genie's kind of out of the bottle right now, mm. and we need a much deeper and earlier prevention effort if we're going to intervene in ways that prevent violence. What would a deeper and earlier prevention system look like? I mean, most other countries invest, you know, up to 95% of their counter extremism resources in what we would call primary prevention. So mm -hmm. digital media literacy, civic education, helping people recognize and reject propaganda and not be persuaded by it. Um, we invest almost no resources in that and instead kind of focus on the security and carceral approach, but you know, we're not gonna ban or arrest our way out of the problems that we face. And I, I think we're seeing that with the exponential growth in hate crimes and other kinds of problems that we're facing. You can't just wait till something bad happens and then clean it up. How would you describe the current state of violent extremism in the US? On every measure we have available, domestic violent extremism has been increasing, both on the hate-fueled violence side. We have record-breaking anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-Asian, American and Pacific Islander hate, uh, anti-LGBTQ hate. We have record you know, growth in the support for political violence as well. So it's a crisis, um, and we need to see serious investment in the prevention model, not just in the security one. Cynthia Miller-Idris runs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University. Thank you. Thank you. A massive flood is growing in California's Central Valley. On a tour of the area, the state's governor, Gavin Newsom, gestured toward a flooded farm. You can look at a scene like this and think that the worst is behind us, when in fact, quite the contrary. That's because more water is coming. NPR's Nathan Rott followed one river to explain why. He started on the shores of Tulare Lake. That lake had not existed for decades until now. It's truly hard to describe the scale of the flooding in California's Central Valley. Yeah, it, it's nuts. From their home in Corcoran, George and Judy Mendez have been anxiously watching Tulare Lake grow every day. Their home, like the rest in this town of 22,000, sits on the lake's historic shore. My brother, he come out here with me the other day and he's very seldom at loss for words. And his jaw hit the ground. He's just like, Whoa. yeah. I mean, it's... This looks like the ocean. Yeah. That sound you hear? Seagulls, two hours from the Pacific coast. An area roughly the size of Salt Lake City, Utah, has already flooded here. Farms, roads, and homes have been inundated by rainwater from this year's abnormally wet winter and spring. And it's still coming, yeah. Yeah, it's going to get bigger. Farmers and residents, politicians and water officials, everyone knows that a bigger flood is yet to come. This lake will keep on expanding. But to understand why and when, you have to travel 80 miles east of Corcoran, out of the valley and up the steep winding canyons of the southern Sierra Nevada. Ball of foot, heel in there. To where Eric Meyer puts on his snowshoes. These ones you just bring right through that metal and then cinch it down. Meyer is an ecologist at Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. We're snowshoeing a short distance in Sequoia. Its namesake trees, the largest on the planet, tower into a foggy sky above. Giant snow, giant trees. <laughs> We've stopped near the base of one of them at about 7,000 feet of elevation. Meyer directs the park's snow surveys here every winter. Last year, we would have been at 33% of normal for 
April 1st, and this year I think around like 280% of normal. Some parts of the Southern Sierra have more than four times as much snow as they normally would this time of year. But already it's starting to melt. Water drips from snowbanks, still twice the size of Meyer's truck along Sequoia's roads. It trickles in small troughs and cascades down rocks, forming larger and larger channels. Ooh, it's like a stream. Yeah. Until it hits the Kawea River. One of four major rivers that eventually end up in Tulare Lake. But not before it pauses here. You kind of see one of the buckets in the spillway, water control tower, main dam. Ryan Watson is the deputy operations project manager at Terminus Dam. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built this earthen structure just uphill from where the Kawea River used to spill out into the Central Valley. The point of this dam, Watson says, is to manage, not control, the river's water. Because you can't control a river, right? Like, we're not as naive to think we have dominance over Mother Nature. Like, she's going to do what she's going to do, as we're seeing. This dam and others like it in the Sierra foothills is meant to moderate that. Water rushed down the Kawea River during a series of extreme rainstorms earlier this year. It's expected to again as the snow melts. The dam is supposed to serve as a speed bump for all of that water. It gets ponded so it's not that big rush of water going into the system. Then dam operators like Watson release it in managed spurts. Is there still flooding downstream? Yes. Would it be significantly worse if the structure weren't here? Absolutely. More than 50 different levee breaks happened downstream during the rains earlier this year. A series of storms that scientists say will become more likely as the climate warms. Water was released from this dam in larger amounts than the canals downstream were designed to handle. To avoid that happening again, dam operators are still dumping water to try to empty the reservoir in preparation for the big melt. But there are concerns that with warming temperatures, it could fill up again fast, which is why just downstream from the dam in the city of Visalia, Mark Larson is hardly sleeping. This year has been crazy. Larson is the general manager of the Kawea Delta Water Conservation District. There are two maps on the wall of his conference room. One shows the river and the valley as it was in 1885. And see all the, the rivers and sloughs and creeks and channels? Uh-huh. And then flash over to this map here and you see- A map of the same area roughly 100 years later. And you see about a quarter of them. And we wonder why we have flood issues. Larson's job is to manage all of the water that comes out of Terminus Dam before it reaches to Larry Lake. Normally, he says, most of it goes to agriculture. Every drop of water that comes down the Queer River system has somebody's name on it, and that's their right to use that water. It's that complete use of the water, which led to Tulare Lake disappearing decades ago. Now in a really wet year, we can't contain it all here in the Quia Basin, and that's when it goes to the old historic Tulare Lake bed area. Into farms and developed areas, right on the doorstep of where we started, back in Corcoran. You're looking at the Corcoran levee, and you're actually on it right here. Greg Gatska is Corcoran city manager. The levee we're on is 14 and a half miles long, and water is already lapping at its side. That is what's protecting the city from floodwaters to the south of us. Efforts have been underway in recent weeks to improve this levee, to make it taller, strengthen it in places. As if on cue, a bulldozer rumbles by. 
Federal and state disaster money is now making its way to Corcoran and broader Kings County to support these efforts. But Gatska says the unique timing of the situation makes getting support difficult. This is not a disaster recovery situation, and most of the funding mechanisms through state and federal government are after the fact. Corcoran still has time to prepare, Gatska says. There's a small window before the snowmelt starts in earnest. But they need to be prepared, he says, because the water is already at the town's levee. And we have to endure that for seven months to two years, most likely. Two years because that's how long it took water to evaporate the last time Tulare Lake came back at this scale, 50 years ago. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Corcoran, California. This is NPR News. Good morning. It's finally Friday, and you're with WBUR. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, there are efforts underway to make the Kentucky Derby more welcoming for people who don't drink. And again, it's Friday. That means it's time for StoryCorps. Today, two women who grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota talk about falling in love. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Mother's Day is just around the corner, so I decided to talk to some local experts. How do you know a mama? What does a mama do? When things fall down, when you play and they help you rebuild it. What do you like about your mama? I like my mama because she has me and I have her. If there's someone in your life who loves you as much as you love them or helps you pick up the pieces when things fall down, send them Winston Flowers through WBUR. You'll help us share more of the voices and perspectives in our community. I love my mama so, 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 Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. So, so, much. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 54. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon, in stores or at hintwater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Layla Faulted. Booze, especially bourbon, is a key part of Kentucky Derby weekend. The first Saturday in May always prompts a big liquor-soaked party in Louisville. But where's the party for people who don't drink? 
Good news, that's also happening this weekend. Louisville Public Media's Morgan Watkins reports. Take your time. Jesse Hawkins serves mocktails from his mobile bar at a recent concert at Louisville's Waterfront Park. Several taps are built into a tiny three-wheeled cart that pump out booze-free drinks. I just were looking for the alcohol. Yeah, no, no worries, I understand. Some people lose interest once they realize the margaritas don't come with a legal age limit. Hawkins is here for people like himself, people who don't drink alcohol. There's always a pregnant mother, there's always somebody in recovery. And the people that tend to find the bar are so grateful and appreciate it. That's his mission with the Mocktail Project, to make community events like this one more inclusive. He was inspired by an experience he had at Churchill Downs about nine years ago. He was at the track on Derby Day, just a couple weeks after he stopped drinking. And I'm, you know, standing there and I'm looking around and everyone's holding up a mint julep, they're embracing themselves, they're, you know, hugging their friends. And I remember holding a bottle of water at the time. That moment, Hawkins says, sparked the idea for his mocktail project. But he knows that for some people in recovery, it's better to skip non-alcoholic cocktails and avoid parties altogether. I tell anyone, like, if holding a mocktail or alcohol-free cocktail is a trigger, that's okay. In a city where Derby Day revolves around drinking, Token 3 Club is a place for people who don't want to be around alcohol at all, but want to watch the races. Mark Jost chairs the board that runs this club. He says Derby can be triggering for people who've stopped using alcohol or drugs. It is a party day. For a lot of people, that's a good thing, but for some people, that can be a problem. And so it's nice to know that there's alternatives to spend the day away from those temptations. This year, Token 3 Club is hosting a sober derby party with a chili cook-off. Hello. Hi. How are you? (laughs) Stephanie Coy works at Louisville Recovery Community Connection downtown. She's found an upside to skipping alcohol on race day. You know, early on, when I quit drinking, just kind of looked at it as, well, you know, I have a lot more money to bet now, (laughs) you know? She's with two other women who are in recovery, too. For them, there's still so much joy in Derby Day. Removing the alcohol does not remove, like, the greatness of Kentucky Derby. The laughter. Yeah, it doesn't take away from any of those things. Now that they're sober, these women made new Derby traditions with their family and the people they met in recovery. For NPR News, I'm Morgan Watkins in Louisville. Felipa De Leon Musso and Monique Muffy Musso grew up miles apart on the Pine Ridge Reservation, but they didn't connect until they were in their 30s. Felipa had never dated a woman before, but when she spotted Muffy in a crowded bar, it set her on an unexpected path. They came to StoryCorps to recall that night and what followed as they confronted prejudice and the persistent threat of violence. What I remember is seeing you in the bar and just falling head over heels in love with you. And I just said, I'm going to be with her. So I went over and I gave you my car keys and told you you was driving me home. (laughs) It was totally black and white until I seen you that night. Everything became colorful and bright, like a lightning bolt. After we started dating, I was working as a preschool teacher, and we were having our family picnic. And I let him know that he was my girlfriend, not realizing what kind of effect that was going to have on my job. That Monday when I got back to work, I was called into the office, and the director 
that advised me that I was no longer needed. I asked him why and what did I do, and he told me that it was unethical for someone like me to be working with children. And I was threatened that you would be raped every time I left to go to work. I couldn't take that. You couldn't take that. And I jumped off. My main objective was to pass laws to ensure that safety of our people. Yeah. And it was scary. Oh. Talking in front of the tribal consuls about everything that we've been through. Yeah. But we had elders stand up and really embrace us and say, we've been waiting for you girls to come and do this. And they passed that law. Yes, they did. You know, prior to pilgrims touching on this land, we were accepted because Two-Spirit, we are the Wowaka sacredness of our people. Yeah. And we're giving our Teoshbae, our families, and the generations yet to come, a safe place for them. Like you always tell me, Muffy, this is a spiritual journey. We have to keep each other strong. And as long as we're doing it together and it's me and you, we have this. That's Felipa de Leon Musso and Monique Muffy Musso, who are now married in Rapid City, South Dakota. They helped pass marriage equality and hate crime laws on the Pine Ridge Reservation and in several other tribal nations. There's more to their story, and you can hear it on the upcoming season of the StoryCorps podcast. Get it at npr.org. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. You're starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes on Morning Edition, how the U.K.'s royal family is trying to modernize tomorrow's coronation, the first in 80 years. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has come under scrutiny once again, this time for failing to disclose that a Republican billionaire helped pay the private school tuition for his great-nephew. Despite the latest revelation, congressional Republicans like Senator John Cornyn continue to defend Thomas. I think the best thing for the uh, Chief Justice Roberts and the judges to do is to take this experience and go back and and consider whether there are changes in their 
uh, code of ethics for the Supreme Court are appropriate. Congressional Democrats have long pushed for the Supreme Court to adopt a binding code of ethics. An autopsy report shows that blunt force injuries to the head led to the death of black motorist Tyree Nichols. Katie Reardon of member station WKNO reports the Memphis police officers, all of whom were also black, were captured on camera, beating him following a traffic stop. The medical examiner's office classified the manner of Nichols' death as a homicide. Five police officers have been charged with second-degree murder for his death and have pleaded not guilty. In addition to head trauma, the state's autopsy report says the 29-year-old suffered multiple injuries to his neck, torso, and extremities. It says Nichols became unresponsive and received CPR before being admitted to the hospital. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A New Hampshire man accused of making bomb threats against Harvard is due in a Boston court today. Federal investigators say William A. Giordani threatened to detonate three bombs on Harvard's campus last month unless he received a Bitcoin payment. He's also accused of planting a tool bag containing fireworks on the campus as proof the threats were real. Those threats prompted an evacuation of the area. Massachusetts lawmakers want to increase the tree canopy across the state. New legislation would give communities money to develop reforestation plans. Most cities and towns would be required to participate. Those in favor of the bill say it'll help the state meet its climate goals. It doesn't feel like it may be with today's weather, but beach season is just around the corner. At some Massachusetts beaches, though, you'll have to book parking weeks in advance to secure a spot. WBUR's Lainey Rugstall takes a look at why access to the beach is getting more difficult. UMass Boston professor John Duff says as Massachusetts population has increased, so has demand for waterfront access. Now people spend more time at their coastal property and more people want to walk along the beach. So it's kind of the pressure that's being put on these limited spaces by the public who just want someplace to go. Towns and cities have made some efforts to reacquire coastal property and make beaches more accessible. But even then, access is often limited to residents. Duff says there are still a number of state and town-owned beaches that people can access. The key is knowing where to go. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtel. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go EndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. Boston sports fans will have their eyes on Philadelphia tonight. It's game three there tonight between the Celtics and the Sixers. The playoff series is tied at one win each. The Red Sox will open up a weekend road trip against the Phillies tonight. Last night at Fenway, the Sox beat the Toronto Blue Jays 11-5. There's a chance of patchy drizzle through about mid-morning. Then it'll be overcast today with a high in the mid-50s. Tonight some clouds clear away and it'll be in the mid-40s. Then the weather finally improves for the weekend. It'll be sunny and near 70 both days. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston at 834. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries, 
Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spin-off. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Across the pond this weekend brings the much ballyhooed crowning of King Charles III. It's the first coronation in 70 years. Now, will it have pomp and pageantry? Absolutely. Flag-waving tourists? Check. A modern monarchy that can appeal to younger, more diverse British citizens? Maybe. King Charles's coronation comes at a time of economic crisis in the U.K. Not to mention waning support for the monarchy. So the royals are trying to balance ancient tradition with, well, the real world. NPR's Lauren Freyer is outside Buckingham Palace and joins us now. Hi, Lauren. Hi there. So what do the preparations look like you are around you? Lots of flags and lots of umbrellas. Uh, It's just started drizzling and it's actually not forecast to stop until the crown is on King Charles's head and the royals wave from the palace balcony I'm looking up at right now. That has not stopped thousands of people from gathering here though. Some have camped out for days. The family next to me has two little boys wearing plastic golden crowns. Um, Lots of police here too. World leaders are also arriving, Jill Biden will be attending, but not her husband. Another famous American, Meghan Duchess of Sussex, will not be here. Her husband, Prince Harry, will. One of those who came down to check out the decorations was Mary Warman, and she describes what she's looking forward to tomorrow. I just want to see the whole ceremony and uh, what everybody is wearing and how the Abbey is looking, how they've decorated it. And listening to the music, I think the music is going to be thrilling. She's talking about Westminster Abbey, of course. The music at this ceremony is a closely guarded secret. The coronation theme has been composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber, but we won't hear it until it debuts tomorrow. So walk us through the ceremony and what we expect to see tomorrow. You are going to see a lot of royal bling. Charles and Camilla will roll up to the Abbey in a golden-topped horse-drawn carriage. But, you know, this is a modern coronation, so it has power windows and AC. Not that he'll need that. It's quite chilly here. The king will wear golden robes. He'll hold a golden orb in his right hand. He's got golden scepters. They're like magic wands, kind of. The heart of this ceremony is the anointing with holy oil from Jerusalem. And then, basically, everybody yells, long live the king. They sing God save the king. The royals return to their palace. There's a military flyover and that wave from the balcony I mentioned. So it's basically following this thousand, more than thousand year old script with some differences though. So what are some of the differences? Well, there will be an official role for representatives of other religions besides the Church of England, which the king is the head of. All Britons, not just aristocrats, will be asked to swear allegiance to the king at the ceremony. Royals are trying to staunch waning support for this monarchy. And I asked a political scientist, Anand Menon, how they can do that. Appearing modern and in touch, I think, is absolutely fundamental. There's some things that they can't do anything about. The fact of the matter is the coronation is going to cost a lot of money. They've got to hope that that doesn't become a matter of public concern at a time when, of course, the UK is going through a cost of living crisis. So regular folks in Britain are dealing with rising food prices and rising heating bills. And this coronation may cost taxpayers upwards of some $125 million. Whoa. 
I guess those golden orbs are not cheap. NPR's Lauren Freyer outside Buckingham Palace, where King Charles' coronation procession will begin tomorrow. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. A very specific genre of music from Mexico is currently dominating the U.S. pop charts. Two songs in the top ten. And as we do with all things from the Latin music world, we call Nuestra Pana from the Alt-Latino podcast, Felix Contreras and Ana Maria Sayer. A lot to unpack. Where should we start, Ana Maria? Well, as with any good party, I say we started with some music. This is a song called Ella Baila Sola, and it is from two very young new artists, Eslabón Armado, which is a Mexican-American band, and Peso Pluma. It's currently number four on the Billboard charts. What we're talking about is a genre of Mexican music called regional Mexican or regional. The music industry has been using this genre as a way to keep track of music from Mexico with all kinds of styles under the umbrella, like mariachi, norteño, banda, as well as the style developed in the U.S. called Tejano. Right now, the music is, is having an explosion like nothing before. It's hitting the global pop charts, too. So, Felix, can you break down what it is we're hearing here? It, it might be a new sound to some folks, uh, but definitely not me. <laughs> it's a combination of what is known as banda and an earlier form of guitar music that was popular along the Texas-Mexican border. Banda has its roots in Mexico going back to the middle of the 19th century. It's basically local musicians who are using the instruments of military band to create their own form of Mexican soul. Here's a clip of some early, early music. Check it out. Okay, now mix that with this track from pioneering Mexican-American musician Lydia Mendoza, which was recorded in 1934. Add in a dash of hip-hop swagger and performances and music videos, and you get something that's selling like hotcakes. Or hot flour tortillas, if you will. <laughs> and, and, and Ana, speaking of uh, swag, the swaggiest of all, he decided to partner up with one of these bands. Puerto Rican artist, you may have heard of him, Bad Bunny, uh, released a regional track recently. And let me tell you, the internet, specifically TikTok, went wild. Benito recorded Un Por Ciento with the hot new band Grupo Frontera, and it's now at number five on the charts. It blew up like overnight. Why do you think it's happening right now? It is really insane to see that the top three songs on the Billboard Global charts right now are all regional. I mean, that is completely unprecedented. And I think the Latin diaspora at large is really excited to get behind regional. It's hard to say if it's going to be here forever, but I do have a feeling we're going to have a summer of regional. And I would add that audiences, I think, are more open to things that are new and different, despite what the suits may think in the record industry. 
Well, let's soak it in while it's here, and hopefully it's here a while. Ana Maria Ser and Felix Contreras, co-hosts of NPR's Alt Latino podcast. Thanks a lot, you two. Thanks, This is NPR News. We made it to Friday. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, there's a new effort to provide mental health care to students virtually through a startup that's working with more than a dozen Massachusetts school districts. Mostly cloudy and mid-50s today, partly cloudy and mid-40s tonight, then sunny and near 70 both days this weekend. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And The Huntington with Joy in Pandemic, a world premiere play by MacArthur genius Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco. Set in 1918 Philadelphia, Joy and Pandemic explores the relationships between science and faith and parents and children, now through May 21st at the Calderwood BCA, huntingtontheater.org. The popular local retail chain Christmas Tree Shops may file for bankruptcy. The Wall Street Journal reports it could happen as soon as this weekend. The Middleborough-based company has about 80 stores nationwide. It's unclear how a bankruptcy filing would affect those outlets. A popular Irish bar in Davis Square, Somerville, is shutting down. Owners of the Sligo Pub say they'll close in June after more than 75 years in business. Last year, the building the pub calls home was slated to become a mix of lab and retail space. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Like most of the nation, Massachusetts has seen a large increase in the number of kids experiencing anxiety and depression. But some families say mental health care has been difficult to access due to long wait times and other barriers. As WBUR's Suvan Lee reports, this year one company began offering students short-term virtual mental health care by working through the schools. 15-year-old Ayla says she first experienced feelings of anxiety and depression when she was 10. Like the beginning of fifth grade, it was around when my parents divorced and that was just like a really hard time for me. When Ayla started at Acton Boxborough Regional High School last fall, it was another difficult time. It was hard making friends in the new school with like new people and everything. So that like kind of made my mental health like have challenges. We're using Ayla's first name only. Her family requested privacy due to the potential stigma of receiving mental health care. Ayla's mother, Kim Russell, says she tried to find a therapist for her daughter, but struggled because of long wait times or a lack of providers who would take her insurance. Ayla saw school counselors, but they couldn't fully meet her needs. Ayla fortunately has great counselors at school and have provided a safe space for her to go to, but... They have a lot of students they take care of, and they don't have the time or, you know, the capacity. But Ayla's school counselor told Russell about a new school partner that could offer short-term virtual therapy. She signed the consent form. 
Russell says the partner, named Cartwheel Care, called less than 24 hours later and offered an appointment within a week. It was just incredible how quickly they were able to accept her, get care for her, for what she needed. School leaders say they've seen increased anxiety and depression among students, particularly since the pandemic. Counselors and community mental health providers are under strain, so a service like Cartwheel caught their attention. The company partners with districts and relies on referrals from school counselors. They offer short-term therapy of two to six months and put families in touch with long-term providers. I think the piece that's been most appealing to us is they guarantee the start of care within five days of referral. And so far, we're hitting 100% rate on that. Peter Light is superintendent of Acton-Boxborough Schools. He says the district has opened up to 150 cases with cartwheel since last September. Light says families have so far offered positive feedback and the remote setup hasn't been a deterrent. It's a lot more convenient that way. I'm not going to say it might be for everyone, but it, it certainly is a good bridge. Ayla says her sessions with her cartwheel therapist were helpful. It taught me a lot of coping skills, especially for in school. So using those while I was in school helped with, like, my anxiety. Cartwheel Care is partnering with 15 Massachusetts districts this year. Chelsea Public Schools is among them. The district's diversity and inclusion officer, Erin Jennings, says many Chelsea students experienced trauma during the pandemic on top of existing inequities. Post-COVID, everybody came back into schools dysregulated. Dare I say, even some of our educators did across the nation. Jennings says many more kids sought counseling. The district didn't have the resources to meet the demand. They introduced Cartwheel at Chelsea High School. Students who are referred to Cartwheel can meet with their therapists after school hours. Some can even talk with them in their home language. They do have bilingual, culturally responsive therapists, which is vitally important, particularly for Chelsea. As I said before, we're 90 plus percent school district that are, um, are Latinx. And so we need to have therapists that speak Spanish. Up to 20 districts have committed to Cartwheel for next school year, according to CEO and co-founder Joe English. He says the partnership helps schools fulfill a mission to their communities. Schools are the heart and soul of every community, and people look to schools for a lot more than education. People look to schools for social connection. They look to schools for social services, for healthcare, and the reality is they, are, they don't have the resources that they need to fully meet all of those the company handles all billing and insurance. Families on MassHealth are fully covered. Districts pay for non-reimbursable costs, like staff training or parent education. Acton-Boxborough Schools used COVID relief aid to fund the partnership for one school year, but Superintendent Light says the district intends to keep it going long-term. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Suvon Lee. Thanks for being with WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the impact of AI on workplaces. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. A new report out from the Department of Labor shows employers added 253,000 jobs last month as the unemployment rate dipped to 3.4 percent. A jury found four members of the far-right Proud Boys group guilty of seditious conspiracy in their role in the January 6th attacks. And in Serbia, a suspect is in custody accused of shooting and killing eight people there in the country's second mass shooting in a week. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's top 100. Now on view, ICABoston.org. Mostly cloudy in mid-50s today. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston at 851. The jobs report just now sure doesn't look like a recession. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. It's part of who they are. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. I'm David Brancaccio. There's news that hiring in the month gone by was once again stronger than expected. 253,000 more people drawing paychecks, according to fresh government data. And in what's good news for employees, but maybe of concern to inflation fighters, average wages went up half a percent, meaning pay is up 4.4 percent in a year. Let's bring in live economist Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, who's just sped through the report. Good morning. Morning, Julia. All right, we're going to get back to Julia in just a second. I promise we'll do that. It's been a punishing week for bank stocks, particularly for shares of PacWest based in Beverly Hills and Western Alliance out of Phoenix. They're two mid-sized financial institutions most under scrutiny following the collapse and sale of First Republic Bank last weekend, right? Since Monday, the KBW Regional Bank Index is down 10 percent and shares of PacWest have fallen nearly 70 percent, although this morning they've popped back up some, up about 20 percent as we speak, or 25 percent. And with some calm returning to bank stocks this morning, I'm going to check stock index futures, which are S&P futures up 7 tenths percent, Dow futures up 207.6 tenths percent, and NASDAQ futures up 6 tenths percent. Now, where were you when the World Wide Web was invented? It's generally accepted that that was back in 1989. Where were you when generative artificial intelligence got dropped on the world? The chat GPT prototype was launched just this last November, the 30th. It's changing schools already. I heard an 11-year-old going on this week about how chat GPT does his homework for him. It's changing workplaces. And to what extent will it enhance jobs or destroy them will be a major workplace story. And the real-world data on this last point are just beginning to trickle in. Joining us with more is Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell. Hey, Chris. Good morning, David. This study 
looked at how AI played out at an actual Fortune 500 company. And that's what's really striking about this study. So it's Generative AI at Work. It's by three scholars, two from MIT, one from Stanford. And the program used by the company is a recent version of the GPT family of these large language models developed by OpenAI, the ones we've been playing with. So this Fortune 500 company, it provides business process software, and it uses AI to work with its more than 5,000 customer support agents. Well, let's hear more about that, right? This is a pretty fast turnaround study. How did artificial intelligence play out with this specific unnamed company's customer support agents? Okay, so it monitors the customer chats and it provides the agents with real-time suggestions for how to respond to customer queries. Now, the AI setup is to support agents. The agents are responsible for the conversation and, just like a colleague, they're free to ignore the AI prompts and input. And if this stuff is worth anything at all, it would have increased their productivity. Is that what they found? That's what they found. AI boosted productivity on average by about 14%. And that's measured as an increase in the number of chats an agent can resolve in an hour. So I think numbers like this, David, they're just going to convince more and more companies to adopt AI. And as far as the scholars know, by the way, theirs is the first systemic look at the impact of AI on workers in real time. All right. But not show-stopping. Give me something that'll stop traffic here from that study. All right. The most striking result to me and to the scholars is that AI disproportionately improved the work performance of less skilled and less experienced workers. AI also helped these workers raise their job skills fast. So they find suggestive evidence, and I quote, AI recommendations lead low-skilled workers to communicate more like high-skilled workers. Right. And in economic terms, this increased productivity for lower skilled workers could, if any of the benefits are ever passed through to their paychecks, help raise their standards of living. Well, it's a suggestive idea. Now, the scholars are very clear. They don't get into the bigger issues. But their calculation, David, that less skilled workers could be a major beneficiary of AI, you know, that's really something to think about. Chris Farrell, Marketplace's senior economics contributor, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, David. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant automatically takes live meeting notes, captures slides, generates summaries, and assigns action items. More at Otter.ai. Now back to stronger-than-expected hiring with the news this morning. 253,000 more people drawing paychecks. Julia Coronado is founder of Macro Policy Perspectives and joins us now. Hey, Julia. Good morning. So where's this recession that economists keep fretting about? Not in April, surely. It's definitely not a recession yet. We are back at the lows of the unemployment rate at 3.4%. We saw that in January and we're still hugging close to the lows. So um, no rising unemployment rate in the U.S. economy yet. Now, it had been pretty broad-based. Lots of people, lots of different industries getting jobs all at once. What are we seeing in April? We are seeing a narrowing in the sectors that are hiring. So, for example, tech is not hiring. Uh, Manufacturing hiring has slowed. We still see just a whole lot of healthcare and education jobs, both public and private. These sectors are still playing catch up from the shortfall that they experienced in the last couple of years. 
All right. And you, I mentioned earlier that wages are still going up quite briskly. In fact, average hourly earnings were up more than expected. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, that's going to news is going to probably worry the Fed. Uh, not sure that's enough to put a rate hike back on the table. But um, yeah, workers are still getting pretty strong raises. All right. Got about a half minute here. The unemployment rate moved in the right direction. Three point four percent. Extraordinarily low. You have the numbers by race. What's the unemployment rate for African-Americans? Yeah, well, last month we saw the uh, unemployment rate for black Americans fall to a record low of 5%. In April, it went down even further to 4.7%. And that's the narrowest gap between the broader unemployment rate we've ever seen. So that's definitely some good news. All right, definitely good news. Julia Coronado, a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Always good to talk to you. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Coming soon, mazes and brain games challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. MOS.org. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.